For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. As we're recording this, we're down to 19 days until the election. We're at the point where you don't just have polls to talk about. We have real numbers from early voting, but there are a lot of numbers coming in. Where should we be focusing? So we asked Simon Rosenberg to come back and help break down the latest. We've been doing this about once a month, once every three weeks or so. You know, it's great always to get Simon's outlook and insight. And, you know, and a lot of times uh, Simon and I have agreed, but uh, let's let's see where we are. Alex, where do you want to get, get started? Well, Simon, I got to say, every time Joe and I go through a, a pod recording and we're, we're putting down all our info in, in, the, in the document and doing our prep call and we say, there's a lot of numbers on here. We got to figure out how to make sense of it. Our first response is always, let's have Simon back. So thanks for being back with us, man. Good to be with you guys. Look, to me, the re- we're moving from the obsession about the polls now to looking at early vote numbers. We're starting to see a substantial uh, numbers coming in that are meaningful, you know, that are meaningful. And today, uh, a new website went up called Target Early, which is the most comprehensive site looking at the early vote numbers. And, and what it finds is that you know, so far, uh, 2022 is way above 2018 turnout at the same point, you know, 19 days out. And there are the electorate is more democratic than either 2018 or 2020. So that's encouraging. You know, it's still super early and, and there's lots of dispute about how important this early kind of vote data is and what it means for the general. I think it's very meaningful. I, I think it's an indication of where people's heads are at. It's more important data in many cases than polling. So I think the the most important data we have today is encouraging for us. And obviously the the historic level of turnout we're seeing in Georgia is really extra, it's an incredible thing that's happening. I mean, they're they're they've had three consecutive days of general election turnout. And if that means that as other states start to vote, we start to have higher turnout. And and Echelon Insights has pr- projected that the turnout in 2022 is going to be between five and 10 points higher than 2018. And 2018 was a record turnout. You know, that I think that benefits us. And so I still would rather be us than them. And I'm optimistic about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I wanted to make clear to people is, look, uh, races are tightening, but they always do uh, in the last three weeks. I mean, you know, so these races that you've been seeing where you, you know, whoever it is been up by three or four points and you see it closing to two. That's like a, 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 the way it, it usually looks in terms of what's happening in, in polling. But again, as, as Simon points out, you start to get also real turnout numbers and you get to see a lot of things in those numbers, like, you, you, you know, whether Democrats are, are more of that early turnout. Of course, they are, but it's it's up there or above. 2018, 2020. That's encouraging by every and and now every single day in those early vote tallies is another election day. 
It's another chance for right. people out there to keep doing the work, to keep pounding on those doors, to keep calling their friends, make sure they're voting and, and, and start to grow that margin. Because we know there'll be a lot of Republicans who vote on Election Day. And that's, that's where that balance comes in. Uh, we won't know that until, until Election Day, whether, this, whether we're, we're growing the numbers big enough to win. But, it, but right now, it's very encouraging. Can I make a, a comment for everyone who's listening is that it's really important that you vote early. And there are three reasons why. First of all, when you vote early, you get removed from the GOTV roles, meaning that the campaigns can move on to target lower propensity voters. And it actually makes more Democrats and increases turnout. The second thing it does is it just makes our elections run smoother. And just given all the concerns about re Republican interference and things that may happen, the more votes that are banked early, the harder it is for anything bad to happen in the elections. But third, and perhaps most important, is that it creates social pressure on people who are not sure if they're going to vote or not. It creates the bandwagon effect. And, it, and it, the way to think about it is like people are wondering if they're going to vote. Do I really care? Do I really have a candidate? And then they look around, they're saying, God, everybody's voting. I have to vote too. And that social pressure, we know this. This is proven techniques of how to increase turnout. It used to be that we could only do that on election day. Now, this early vote for a party that has more episodic and infrequent voters, this becomes really important for us. And so if you vote early, you help make the elections run smoother. You make you create more turnout for Democrats, and you create more encouragement for people who are sitting on the fence, not sure they're going to voting, to vote. So please vote early. It's the single most important thing you can do right now to help Democrats win these midterms. So you know, just to give you folks an idea of sort of how the dynamics are out there, you know, Target Smart data looking at how much more the electorate early vote electorate is, you know, uh, how much of it's, uh, we're Democrats. In 2018, 44%, this 44% of, of the early vote was Democrats. Actually, Republicans voted more, uh, I think around 48%, if I remember correctly, in the early vote in 2018. It wasn't quite the Trump, you, you know, going after early vote, uh, mail-in ballots, that kind of stuff didn't really happen until uh, we got into the 2020 cycle. At which point, 54.5 percent in 2020, 54.5 uh, percent of the early vote was Democrats. Uh, so you could start to see that that change. That was the first time in these cycles that Democrats outnumbered Republicans in the early vote, and it was pretty substantial, 54.5. In 2022, right now, it's 55.7 ahead of a president. You know what we were, what happened in the 2020 presidential year. So 55.7% of early votes at this stage are, are Democrats. And again, that's, that's the highest it's, it's, it's ever been. But when you start looking at some of these states, Simon, um, it's pretty interesting what we're, what we're seeing in places like Pennsylvania and, and Georgia. Well, and Tom Bonnier, who is the, the genius behind the site, who is a good friend, and you've probably had him on your show, and I've had, you know, we've done discussions. He tweeted out yesterday that in something like 14 of the states where we have enough data to really know what's going on, that the percentage of people of color is higher uh, as a percentage of the early vote than it was in the last two elections. And again, I, I think that I don't, you know, look, this whole 
early vote vote by mail system is kind of new, right? This is a very different kind of election, Joe, than than what many of us have worked in. And I think this system really benefits us because we have a higher percentage of irregular voters. And so this notion that two to three weeks out, you're going to be getting daily stories about the high turnout is so beneficial to create more turnout. And the truth is, if the Republicans we knew were going to be energized, and the questions were, is how energized would Democrats be? Because you know we've won the last two elections by six points. And so if we just turn out everybody who voted in 2018 or 2020, we should be in good shape. We don't need to win over a single new voter. You know, the the most the the biggest poll done this week of of likely voters was done by Morning Consult, and in their poll, they had the Demo they had Democrats more likely to vote five percentage points higher than Republicans and growing. It was the highest. So they're tracking in their weekly track. They saw the Democratic intensity around the election beating Republicans and actually getting bigger. And so that's my hope. I mean, my hope is now that voting is here. Yeah. You know, that we're going to, the anti-MAGA majority that saved the country in the last two elections is going to show up again. And early, and 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 I think the last thing I'll say for your listeners is that the big unknown in this election, right, the, the thing that is the, the wild card is what happened in these House, these five House specials in Kansas, where we had actual voting, not polling, right? And in those five House specials, we overperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points. And that election, we won by four and a half points, right? Um, and in Kansas, it was even more. And the question always was, is was that surge of Democratic voters in those states, would it carry? Was there, was there a hidden Democratic vote, not a hidden Republican vote this time? And I still will tell you, as a political professional who's been doing this like Joe for far too long, right? <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, right. That... I don't think we really know what's going to happen here. I, I think that this is such a wild election. January 6th, COVID, the ending of, of Roe, the abortion restrictions, Trump's just general venality and malevolence and all the things that are out there. There is no election like this. This is a completely different election than right. anything that we've ever been part of. And anyone who has any degree of certainty of thinking about the, they know what's going to happen is, in my mind, you know, full of it. And particularly because when people have actually voted, we had very unpredictable results just, just in the last few months, right? And, and, and we're much more democratic yeah. than expected. And so that's what, that's what keeps me optimistic, that it's going to be not about polling and Joe Biden. It's going to be about just the American people themselves saying, we're just not going there and preventing these guys from coming back into power. I hope that's what happens on Election Day. The thing that's, as you point out, I mean, I've sort of built for the Charlie Cooks and uh, the folks out that Dave Wasserman, they're because they're, they're, they all got to at five thirty eight. For the most part, they all have to base everything on historical, you know, what usually happens, and and looking at trends uh, of it from the past, and looking at it like all those, like you know, like it's a normal election. We haven't had a normal election or whatever it used to pass for a normal election in you know six eight years in this right. country that you could sort of count on that past data actually helping you project into the future, which is why, you know, it's very interesting that you when you look at the actual data of what's happening that sort of corresponds with that, with what we saw in those five special elections where we outperform. And when you actually look at who's voting, so in Pennsylvania, for example, it, it, nearly 300,000 people have 
have already voted early, and 72% of them are Democrats, 24% are Republicans. But what's fascinating, again, going back to 2018, in 2018, at this point, there were 19,000 Democrats who had voted, not 213,000 in Pennsylvania. That was 44. The Republicans accounted for 48% or 49% right about now, with 21,000 of them voting. So it, they're basically, they've moved, you know, like tripled from like 21,000 to 71,000. And Democratic early vote has gone from 19,000 to 213,000. I mean, this is, these are not, we're not projecting, we're not, these are actual, you know, as actual data of what's happening right now. And by the way, the numbers I just recited to you do not include Philadelphia. These are all because those early vote tallies in in Philadelphia County have not come in to be, uh, you know, that data hasn't come into this data flow yet. So all these numbers that I just talked about, all these increases, the Democrat, you know, it's going to be more than 213,000 Democrats have, have voted by today. But when you start throwing, you know, Philly's kind of big place, folks, you know. Well, and let me give you two more reasons for optimism, right? Because I, I, I think that as we all can acknowledge, this has been among the most pro-Republican press cycles that I can remember in my career. And, and I don't know that we really know why that happened, but it's just a fact, right? The media has sort of made a decision yeah. in the spring, this was going to be a red wave election. They have really sort of refused to let go of it. And now that there's a little bit of good news for Republicans yeah. like the, and so let me give you some other things that I think are not adequately understood in the calculation of how this thing's going to end. One of it and this, the New York Times, Shane Goldmacher had a great piece about this over the weekend, is that because Democratic candidates have raised so much money, and we have much more money than they do in the House and Senate races, it means that because of what's called lowest unit rate, our candidates are going to be running more ads and more spots and more points in the last three weeks than Republicans. Republicans are going to spend more money, but because they're spending more of their money because their candidates didn't raise a lot of money, they're a much higher percentage of their ads are having to be at much higher rates, so they're getting less ads for this for that amount of money. So the truth is, incredibly, because of the grassroots of the Democratic Party and the kind of politics that Joe Trippi championed, you know, in the Dean campaign 20 years ago, we're now gonna we're gonna have more ads run in the final three weeks than they are. That's a big deal, right? The second, and particularly for turnout, for engagement, you know, for getting people off the couch and going to vote. The second thing that is not well understood is the other work that Joe Trippi has been involved in, which is helping Republicans or former Republicans or never Trumpers or whatever we're all going to call this community now. They are more, there has been far more defections from Republican candidates across the country than people understand. I mean, I was in Nevada last week. I spent time with the Cortez Masto campaign and by the way, they're feeling very good about where they are, and we can talk about that. But you know, why I was talking to them, they said they just got endorsed by four prominent Republican women elected officials over the choice issue. Forget about the election denial and all the other reasons why Republicans have been defecting, you know, from Republican mag crazy MAGA candidates. There's now a whole other dimension to the the defections and the level of defections we're seeing in places like Arizona and Nevada and Michigan and Pennsylvania is unprecedented in the modern era of American politics. There has never been a time 
when so many politicians of one party are openly campaigning against the candidates of their own their own party. What does that mean? Is is that one percentage point, two percentage points? You know, in terms of like making the the mainstream Republicans who don't want to vote MAGA, giving them a permission structure not to vote for MAGA. What Liz Cheney's doing, what Bill Crystal's doing, what the Lincoln Project's doing. What does that all amount to? If it's one to two points, that could be the difference between us keeping the, the House and the Senate and not. And so I think that work is also deeply meaningful and significant because you're incre because what it's a bandwagon effect, right? Well, there are 20 people who are like me who don't want who's a Republican, but I don't want to vote Republican because this crazy candidate. No, there's a hundred people like me. Well, I okay, that's what I'm gonna do too, right? And that's what's happening right now all across the country. There's an unprecedented movement, even in Texas, my God, where you've seen an unprecedented number of Republicans endorse Democratic statewide candidates. And so the Republican Party itself is a mess. And they're not they're not closing strong in the way that they would hope. They don't have a strong argument about why they should be in power. They've they've lost election after election. Their candidates are not well-funded, and they're having enormous defections. And so that's another reason why I think these final few weeks could be good weeks for us. Well, I'd also like to point out, Simon, you mentioned the party's a mess. We historically, and we've talked about this on the pod before, yeah. we talk a lot about these permission structures that give people an excuse or a reason to vote one way or the other. It, you know, For example, in Alabama, we had to work really hard to figure out a way to find a way to make a Democrat appealing to Republicans who were turned off by Roy Moore, for example. It's almost like the reverse is kind of happening this year, that even if it might not show up in 22, the way the party is right now, they're not giving the on-ramps back on. The people that they've lost are really, and, and I think the early voting is showing this, but but long-term, the crazy ain't going away. And there there's no like pivot back to moderation that'll say, oh yeah, this was kind of a passing trend, right? This this seems like they're going to have a lot more long-term problems because of it. Listen, Joe Trippi, again, like in so many other ways, was prescient about this and joining the Lincoln Project to start creating this kind of new arrangement that we need, where as Democrats, we have, a, there's an urgency. I had this, I had a talk with Bill Crystal this week on my own discussion series. And what we spent a lot of time talking about is what could a, a, a coalition of Democrats plus these discontented Republicans look like? How do we make it formal? How do we invite them over to our dinner table so they stay, right? Joe has been a pioneer in this and his work in the Lincoln Project. And Joe, why don't you, I mean, this is, you've been working hard on this. Give us your thoughts. No, it's the reason I joined the Lincoln Project. You know, did that op-ed in USA Today way back, you know, over a year ago now, I think. But because it, this isn't, right versus left. It's not Republican versus Democrat anymore. It's a pro-democracy coalition versus the enemies of democracy, to, you know, which is a, a, a everything from the outrage machine that, uh, you know, that, that foments division every day on the, with right media and these candidates who, you know, like we've got, we're now, I think, up to like something like 400 of them that have, uh, that are election deniers and uh, are saying that Trump's, you know, that Joe Biden isn't isn't legitimately elected president of the United States. I mean, it's just so you can't fight that by pushing Republicans. So I, I I do agree with what Alex said that what right now the MAGA cult is pushing out and purging moderate Republicans. I guess they would call them rhinos. I mean, whatever, but uh, or or never Trumpers pushing them out. 
we have a chance, a real opportunity to expand the, the pro-democracy coalition by, by welcoming them, welcoming them in. And hey, you know, like Stuart Stevens in the uh, Lincoln Project, he and I had gone and pummeled each other uh, working in Senate races, him for a Republican, me for a Democrat, you know, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. But it was time, you know, to say, okay, I don't care whether you beat me and, or whether I beat you and, you know, uh, in 96. We've, we've got to come together, attract people, welcome anybody Democrat, independent, former Republican, Republican in, uh, and I, you know, actually when Stuart and I talk about it, we we're actually be happy if they just, you know, if you can't stomach the Democratic Party, just date us for a couple of cycles here. You know, you can, let's fix democracy, save the democracy, and then let's have the the arguments over marginal tax rates, uh, which would, you know, those were the good old days when that's what we were fighting about. But in, in, in any case, it's really important. That's why, you know, at jointheunion.us, there's, you know, tens of thousands of people across party lines who have joined and gotten active. But again, I think what we need long term, I mean, certainly that right now, this is about getting our votes out. It is about making sure that you're registered, that you've checked your registration. I mean, because they, they have been purging folks. And to make sure you have a plan to get there and, and make a plan with others to get them there and help, you know, door knock, sign on with a campaign, go to jointheunion.us. There's a, other great groups out there. But we really need to put everything, leave no nothing, you know, cross the line, gas, put on the gas pedal through this election and then continue to build that coalition because none of this is going away, whether Trump runs or not. There'll be an authoritarian leader of that party, and it will be run by the, the mega cult, and they will still be out you know, to, to divide and take power. And that's why, I, again, I, I'm sorry I keep going back to what's happening, but it's just so encouraging. I mean, you look at the Georgia turnout numbers in the early vote, you know, it's approached 2020, uh, almost matched it. Uh, I mean, you know, president, and look, that was, Georgia was a massive, you know, turnout. Both parties were trying to turn out everything but the kitchen sink in 2020. And, you know, at this stage with the three days, there were 409,000 people who voted in uh, in Georgia in the presidential ele turnout election in 2020. It's 396,000, almost, you know, literally almost identical. And by the way, nearly twice as many that voted in the 2018 midterm. So you're, you're seeing, and, and the same kinds of of numbers that you you know where it's clearly more Democrats uh, than Republicans, clearly more women, which I you know again is important, particularly uh, post adopt decision and what we saw in Kansas that seems to be continuing as you look at these early vote numbers. But but Simon, the one thing I do want to talk to you about beyond that because I know you've been really pounding the table on this misconception about or. You, you know, the, the misuse of data, or I don't know what it is, and I want to hear it from you, of what's wrong with, with all these uh, these conclusions that somehow Democrats or Biden have lost uh, or losing uh, Hispanics, and that, that, you know, that's going to have big consequences in places like Nevada and New Mexico and Arizona uh, and Texas. And I, I know you've been a leader on 
getting, you know, on looking through these numbers and explaining why that's wrong or, or why. Yeah. And so yeah. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. Well, I, I, I appreciate it because this is, you know, one of my favorite subjects. And, yeah. and um, so, and people should realize that my history with the Hispanic vote is that I introduced bilingual polling to the Democratic Party 20 years ago. I produced the first Spanish language ads ever produced. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm yeah. going to interrupt you. Folks, no one was talking about mm -hmm. the, the only guy in the Democratic Party was talking about this stuff 20 years ago about the need uh, to have outreach and communications and and really focus on this community, on the Hispanic community was mm -hmm. Simon Rosenberg. I mean, that it was it was him and only him back then. You may a couple handful of people, <laughs> but he was leading them. So anyway, back yeah. back, back to you. Son. Yeah, and and look, the, the I'll try to do this very quickly. And I and I just released a whole new presentation on this, which you can find on our website at ndm.org. It's about a twenty-five minute data-filled deep dive of the history of the Hispanic vote and what I think is happening today. And the way to think of the most the important thing I can convey here is about I do at the, the start of the presentations. I do I do some math, and here's the math I do at the beginnings. If you have a hundred people and you get 65% of that vote, you get 65 votes. If you have 200 people and you get 63% of that vote, you get 126 votes. So 126 votes is a lot more than 65 votes. And uh, so a little bit less of a lot more is still a lot more. And what's happening is that because this community is growing so fast, um, even if we get a slightly smaller share than we used to, because of the way the math works on this, right? We actually keep netting more and more votes, right? So what's happened is that, let me just give you an example. So since 2004, when Bush ran a very competent and capable Hispanic campaign, which was central to his both his original election and his reelection in 2004, in 2004, Bush won Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico and Nevada, and Florida. In 2020, all these years later, despite the dip that we had with Hispanics, and it was a dip, not a structural decline, we won Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Nevada for the first time in 80 years. In 2004, Republicans controlled in that region, that those four states, they controlled five of the eight Senate seats and 14 of the 21 House seats. Today, we control all eight Senate seats and 14 of 23 House seats. So those gains we've made in the House and the Senate are the reason we have the majority in the House and Senate today. And so despite the dip, we keep gaining in the southwestern, the heavily Mexican-American parts of the country because of the math that I described. And if you look at where things are today, in Arizona, we're doing better in Arizona today than we did in 2020 and 2018, again, because of the same dynamic, right? where we could have dropped a little bit, but because the electorate is growing, we're picking up more votes. In Colorado, we're doing better than we did in 2018 and 2016. In California, Gavin Newsom is doing better than he did in 2018. Right now in Texas, Beto is losing by five or six points. Abbott won the last election by 13 and the previous election by 21. So we're in far better shape in Texas than we've ever been. And in New Mexico, we're going to dip a little bit from 2018, but we're still going to win by eight or nine points. And in Nevada, the race is dead even, and there's been no dip. So in the southwestern region of the country, the heavily Mexican-American parts of the country, we had our best year ever in 2020, and we're going to do better than that this time. 
<laughs> so this is the story about the Hispanic vote, which has been the truth is, if you're looking at the erosion, the erosion is of the Republican Party in the southwestern part of the United States. That's the erosion that's become consequential. Because in 2004, and this is my last point, since 2004, only six states have shifted towards the Democrats on the Electoral College map. And it's Virginia and Georgia and the eastern part of the US, and then the four states that I described. So the gains that we've made with Hispanics and the flipping of that region from a region that created Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater and the two Bushes and John McCain to a region now that we're dominating, right, is the biggest geographic transformation in American politics in the last 50 years. And it's been done because of our success with Hispanics. And so it's my argument that the Democratic Party's strategy for the Hispanics has been the single most successful party-wide strategy we've had in the last 25 years, perhaps other than the transformation of our party to being one that's raising money from low-dollar sources and creating these kinds of campaigns that we have now, which Joe Trippi pioneered 20 years ago. And so I'm very proud of all this, and I think that we have to do a better job at telling the story, not only to you know, ourselves, right, but to the public, because it's actually been the story of Democrats and Hispanics is a story of a remarkable success, not one of decline and failure. So, Simon, uh, you said earlier, you said you you talked about, uh, I think it was Nevada that you just talked to somebody about and you're feeling better. What are you yeah. what are you what are you hearing there? Before? So I was there. I was in Las Vegas last week for a speaking engagement and uh, the campaign manager that race, Cortez Masters race, used to work with me and um, and I've been helping them out a little bit from from afar. They feel like they're up two to three points. They've got several different internal polls showing very similar numbers. Scott Fairchild ran that race six years ago, says he feels very comfortable with where they are right now. They feel like Laxall has hit kind of a ceiling and isn't growing anymore. They only won that race by two points in 2016. Biden won by two points in 2020. They feel like they're basically in the same place. There's been no Hispanic erosion. They also have raised more money from grassroots sources in Nevada than any candidate in modern history. And their grassroots operation is the biggest that any campaign has ever built. And we also now know that the culinary union workers, which is the, the most important union in, uh, in Nevada, has its largest grassroots operation that it's ever fielded in the history, modern history of Nevada. So they feel like they're gonna close strong. They feel really good. Abortion has become a major issue there. Um, Laxalt is not only an extremist on abortion, but the, the entire Republican statewide ticket is all men. And it's one of the reasons why you're seeing defections of prominent Republican pro-choice women come over to Cortez Masto, which could be very significant. Remember, the Southwest is not conservative. It's more libertarian, right? Reagan was more of a libertarian. The Bushes were more conservative. I mean, uh, W was more conservative, a Southerner, right? And so the, this idea of taking away rights in a region where people mm -hmm. go to Las Vegas to sort of be left alone, right? Yeah. This stuff is really, the abortion issue is cutting against the Republicans deeply in that part of the country. And it's one of the reasons I think you're seeing us being in good shape in Arizona and Colorado and other parts of that, other parts of that area of the country, because there's a leave me alone libertarian streak to that region, which the abortion restrictions really cuts yeah. it against. So they are deeply optimistic. I talked to Scott yesterday. Um, and they feel really good. And it's I know it's not the conventional wisdom, but who cares? I mean, these are political yeah. professionals. They know the state well. It's a small state. The other thing I'll tell you is that what I talked to somebody who just polled there independently in a private poll, and they think that, that because it's such a small state, that the very advanced grassroots operation they have there 
is starting to really kick in and make a difference. Early vote starts there this weekend. We're going to have a lot of data very soon. That's great. But I'm I'm upbeat. I'm upbeat and optimistic about about Arizona, about Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. I, we should feel good about all those states. I think Wisconsin is a little bit more problematic. North Carolina can't keep our eye in Ohio. You know where our candidates are keeping it close there. And if we go into the final week and it's close, anything can happen. And so I think people should feel good about where we are in the Senate. And Joe, you and I discussed this before I came on the air, you know, is that I was privy to some private polling done in house races around the country. And, you know, I also feel like that data that I just got before I came on with you today was more encouraging than I expected. It's not perfect. Like yeah. This is not a done deal here in the house. We got to work hard, but they're not blowing us out. And this idea that there's some kind of big structural movement, it's just not showing up in the polls that we're seeing on the ground in these states yet. It could happen. It hasn't happened yet. I think it's important to get out there like you did, uh, you know, talk to campaign manager Scott to Scott was very helpful to to us in Alabama. Uh, you know, we, he, he is, I really totally view him as like one of the best out there to be man, you know, to be running that thing. And, and it's, it's really important to get out there. One of the things I, I wanted to just add is I'm going to do that myself. Cause one of the things that fascinated me was the new Seltzer Des Moines register poll in Iowa that showed Grassley yeah. at 46, the incumbent at 46 and Franken at 43 with, with Grassley's, you know, approved, disapproved being 45, approved 50, disapproved. And so I'm going to go out Sunday and uh, spend three or four days on the ground there. I just want to get a sense of, because I think there are some sleeper things, you know, possibilities. I'm not saying that I, I, I'll report back, uh, you know, on a, a future uh, podcast, maybe Monday from Iowa. But I think there's some this North Carolina. There's some other places out there where there 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 really might be a surprise, and I think Iowa could be it, given uh, these numbers that have just come out. The Des Moines Register poll, the Seltzer poll, is the bible of polling in Iowa. The only poll that gets it right. A lot, I mean, compared to all the polling that's happened in Iowa in presidential years, they've been the closest to getting it right. And I think they they concluded that Grassley could be in real trouble and that Franken uh, has a real shot in Iowa. So anyway, I'm going to go out on the ground and uh, and talk to the campaign folks and maybe even go knock on some doors. But uh, uh, I'll report back in the future, you know, maybe this this Monday. Simon, thanks for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to That Trippy Show. We'll be back next week with more episodes. Please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. See you next time. Thanks again, Simon. Thanks, everybody. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast.